Section 4 of the Book of Sir Marco Polo the Venetian Concerning the Kingdoms and Marvels of the East Volume 2 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Sir Marco Polo the Venetian Concerning the Kingdoms and Marvels of the East Volume 2 by Rusticello da Pisa Translated by Henry Yule Book Second, Part Two Chapters forty nine to fifty two Chapter forty nine Concerning a further part of the province of Karajan After leaving that city of Yachi of which I have been speaking, and travelling ten days towards the west, you come to another capital city, which is still in the province of Karajan, and is itself called Karajan. The people are idolaters and subject to the great Khan, and the king is Kogachin, who is a son of the great Khan. In this country, gold dust is found in great quantities, that is to say, in the rivers and lakes, whilst in the mountains gold is also found in pieces of larger size. Gold is indeed so abundant that they give one sajo of gold for only six of the same weight in silver, and for small change they use the porcelain shells as I mentioned before. These are not found in the country, however, but are brought from India. In this province are found snakes and great serpents of such vast size as to strike fear into those who see them, and so hideous that the very account of them must excite the wonder of those to hear it. I will tell you how long and big they are. You may be assured that some of them are ten paces in length, some are more and some less and in bulk they are equal to a great cask, for the bigger ones are about ten palms in girth. They have two forelegs near the head, but for foot nothing but a claw like the claw of a hawk or that of a lion. The head is very big, and the eyes are bigger than a great loaf of bread. The mouth is large enough to swallow a man whole, and is garnished with great pointed teeth, and in short they are so fierce-looking and so hideously ugly that every man and beast must stand in fear and trembling of them. There are also smaller ones, such as of eight paces long, and of five, and of one pace only. The way in which they are caught is this. You must know that by day they live underground, because of the great heat, and in the night they go out to feed, and devour every animal they can catch. They go also to drink at the rivers and lakes and springs, and their weight is so great that when they travel in search of food or drink, as they do by night, the tail makes a great furrow in the soil, as if a full ton of liquor had been dragged along. Now the huntsmen who go after them take them by a certain gin, which they set in the track over which the serpent has passed, knowing that the beast will come back the same way. They plant a stake deep in the ground, and fix on the head of this a sharp blade of steel, made like a razor or a lance-point and then they cover the hole with sand, so that the serpent cannot see it. Indeed, the huntsman plants several such stakes and blades on the track. On coming to the spot, the beast strikes against the iron blade with such force that it enters his breast, and rives him up to the navel, so that he dies on the spot. And the crows, on seeing the brute dead, begin to caw, and then the huntsmen know that the serpent is dead, and come in search of him. This, then, is the way these beasts are taken. Those who take them proceed to extract the gall from the inside, and this sells at a great price. 
for you must know it furnishes the material for a most precious medicine. Thus, if a person is bitten by a mad dog, and they give him but a small penny weight of this medicine to drink, he is cured in a moment. Again, if a woman is hard in labor, they give her just such another dose, and she is delivered at once. Yet again, if one has any disease like the itch, or it may be worse, and applies a small quantity of this gall, he shall speedily be cured. So you see why it sells at such a high price. They also sell the flesh of this serpent, for it is excellent eating, and the people are very fond of it. And when these serpents are very hungry, sometimes they will seek out the lairs of lions or bears, or other large wild beasts, and devour their cubs, without the sire and dam being able to prevent it. Indeed, if they catch the big ones themselves, they devour them too. They can make no resistance. In this province also are bred large and excellent horses, which are taken to India for sale. And you must know that the people dock two or three joints from the tail from their horses, to prevent them from flipping their riders, a thing which they consider very unseemly. They ride along like Frenchmen, and wear armour of boiled leather, and carry spears and shields and arblasts, and all their quarrels are poisoned. And I was told as a fact that many persons, especially those meditating mischief, constantly carry this poison about with them, so that if by any chance they should be taken, and be threatened with torture, to avoid this they swallow the poison, and so die speedily. But princes who are aware of this keep ready dog's dung, which they cause the criminal instantly to swallow, to make him vomit the poison, and thus they manage to cure those scoundrels. I will tell you of a wicked thing they used to do, before the great Khan conquered them. If it chanced that a man of fine person or noble birth, or some other quality that recommended him, came to lodge with those people, then they would murder him by poison or otherwise, and this they did not for the sake of plunder, but because they believed that in this way the goodly favour and wisdom and repute of the murdered man would cleave to the house where he was slain. And in this manner many were murdered before the country was conquered by the great Khan. But since his conquest, some thirty-five years ago, these crimes and this evil practice has prevailed no more, and this through dread of the great Khan, who will not permit such things. End of chapter 49 Chapter 50 Concerning the province of Zardandan When you have left Karajan, and have travelled five days westward, you find a province called Zardandan. The people are idolaters, and subject to the great Khan. The capital city is called Vochan. The people of this country all have their teeth gilt, or rather every man covers his teeth with the sort of golden case made to fit them, both the upper teeth and the under. The men do this, but not the women. The men also are wont to gird their arms and legs with bands or fillets pricked in black, and it is done thus. They take five needles joined together, and with these they prick the flesh till the blood comes and then they rub in a certain black colouring stuff, and this is perfectly indelible. It is considered a piece of elegance and the sign of gentility to have this black band. The men are all gentlemen in their fashion, and do nothing but go to the wars or go hunting and hawking. The ladies do all the business, aided by the slaves who have been taken in war. And when one of their wives has been delivered of a child, 
the infant is washed and swathed, and then the woman gets up and goes about her household affairs, whilst the husband takes to bed with the child by his side, and so keeps his bed for forty days, and all the kith and kin come to visit him, and keep up a great festivity. They do this because, say they, the woman has had a hard bout of it, and tis but fair the man should have his share of suffering. They eat all kinds of meat, both raw and cooked, and they eat rice with their cooked meat, as their fashion is. Their drink is wine made of rice and spices, and excellent it is. Their money is gold, and for small change they use pig shells. And I can tell you they give one weight of gold for only five of silver, for there is no silver mine within five months' journey. And this induces merchants to go thither carrying a large supply of silver to change among that people. And as they have only five weights of silver to give for one of fine gold, they make immense profits by their exchange business in that country. These people have neither idols nor churches, but worship the progenitor of their family, for tis he, say they, from whom we have all sprung. They have no letters or writing, and tis no wonder, for the country is wild and hard of access, full of great woods and mountains, which tis impossible to pass. The air is so impure and unwholesome, and any foreigners attempting it would die for certain. When these people have any business transactions with one another, they take a piece of stick, round or square, and split it, each taking half, and on either half they cut two or three notches, and when the account is settled, the debtor receives back the other half of the stick from the creditor. Let me tell you that in all those three provinces that I have been speaking of, to wit, Karajan, Vochan, and Yachi, there is never a leech. But when any one is ill, they send for the devil conjurers, who are the keepers of their idols. When these are come, the sick man tells what ails him, and then the conjurers incontinently begin playing on their instruments, and singing, and dancing, and the conjurers dance to such a pitch that at last one of them will fall to the ground lifeless, like a dead man, and then the devil entereth into his body. And when his comrades see him in this plight, they begin to put questions to him about the sick man's ailment, and he will reply, Such or such a spirit hath been meddling with the man, for that he hath angered the spirit, and done it some despite. Then they say, We pray thee to pardon him, and to take of his blood or of his goods what thou wilt in consideration of thus restoring him to health. And when they have so prayed, the malignant spirit that is in the body of the prostrate man will mayhap answer, The sick man hath also done great despite unto such another spirit, and that one is so ill-disposed that it will not pardon him on any account. This at least is the answer they get if the patient be like to die. But if he is to get better, the answer will be that they are to bring two sheep, or maybe three, and to brew ten or twelve jars of drink, very costly and abundantly spiced. Moreover, it will be announced that the sheep must be all black-faced, or of some other particular colour, as it may happen, and then all those things are to be offered in sacrifice to such and such a spirit whose name is given. And they are to bring so many conjurers and so many ladies, and the business is to be done with a great singing of lauds and with many lights and store of good perfumes. That is the sort of answer they get if the patient is to get well. And then the kinsfolk of the sick man go and procure all that has been commanded, and do as has been bidden. And the conjurer who had uttered all that gets on his legs again. 
so they fetch the sheep of the colour prescribed and slaughter them and sprinkle the blood over such places as have been enjoined in honour and propitiation of the spirit and the conjurers come and the ladies in the number that was ordered and when all are assembled and everything is ready they begin to dance and play and sing in honour of the spirit and they take flesh broth and drink and ling aloes and a great number of lights and go about hither and thither scattering the broth and the drink and the meat also and when they have done this for a while again shall one of the conjurers fall flat and wallow there foaming at the mouth and then the others will ask if he have yet pardoned the sick man and sometimes he shall answer yes and sometimes he shall answer no and if the answer be no they shall be told that something or other has to be done all over again and then he shall be pardoned so this they do and when all that the spirit has commanded has been done with great ceremony then it will be announced that the man is pardoned and shall be speedily cured so when they at length receive such a reply they announce that it is all made up with the spirit and that he is propitiated and they fall to eating and drinking with great joy and mirth and he who has been lying lifeless on the ground gets up and takes his share so when they have all eaten and drunken every man departs home and presently the sick man gets sound and well now that i have told you of the customs and naughty ways of that people we will have done talking of them in their province and i will tell you about others all in regular order and succession end of chapter fifty chapter fifty one wherein is related how the king of mean and bangala vowed vengeance against the great khan but i was forgetting to tell you of a famous battle that was fought in the kingdom of ochan in the province of zardandan and that ought not to be omitted from our book so we will relate all the particulars you see in the year of christ twelve hundred and seventy two the great khan sent a large force into the kingdoms of karajan and vochan to protect them from the ravages of ill-disposed people and this was before he had sent any of his sons to rule the country as he did afterwards when he made Sentimur king there the son of a son of his who was deceased now there was a certain king called the king of mean and of bangala who was a very puissant prince with much territory and treasure and people and he was not as yet subject to the great khan though it was not long after that the latter conquered him and took from him both the kingdoms that i have named and it came to pass that when this king of mean and bangala heard that the host of the great khan was at vochan he said to himself that it behooved him to go against them with so great a force as should ensure his cutting off the whole of them insomuch that the great khan would be very sorry ever to send an army again thither to his frontier so this king prepared a great force and munitions of war and he had let me tell you two thousand great elephants on each of which was set a tower of timber well framed and strong and carrying from twelve to sixteen well-armed fighting men and besides these he had of horsemen and of footmen good sixty thousand men in short he equipped a fine force as well befitted such a puissant prince it was indeed a force capable of doing great things and what shall i tell you when the king had completed these great preparations to fight the tartars he tarried not but straightway marched against them and after advancing without meeting with anything worth mentioning they arrived within three days of the great khan's host which was then at vochan 
in the territory of Zardandan, of which I have already spoken. So there the king pitched his camp, and halted to refresh his army. End of chapter 51 Chapter 52 Of the battle that was fought by the great Khan's host, and his seneschal, against the king of Mean. And when the captain of the Tartar host had certain news that the king aforesaid was coming against him with so great a force, he waxed uneasy, seeing that he had with him but twelve thousand horsemen. Nonetheless, he was a most valiant and able soldier, of great experience in arms, and an excellent captain, and his name was Neskredin. His troops, too, were very good, and he gave them very particular orders and cautions how to act, and took every measure for his own defence and that of his army. And why should I make a long story of it? The whole force of the Tartars, consisting of twelve thousand well-mounted horsemen, advanced to receive the enemy in the plain of Ochan, and there they waited to give them battle. And this they did through the good judgment of the excellent captain who led them. For hard by that plain was a great wood, thick with trees, and so there in the plain the Tartars awaited their foe. Let us then leave discoursing of them a while. We shall come back to them presently. But meanwhile let us speak of the enemy. After the king of Mean had halted long enough to refresh his troops, he resumed his march, and came to the plain of Ochan, where the Tartars were already in order of battle. And when the king's army had arrived in the plain, and was within a mile of the enemy, he caused all the castles that were on the elephants to be ordered for battle, and the fighting men to take up their posts on them, and he arrayed his horse and his foot with all skill, like a wise king as he was. And when he had completed all his arrangements, he began to advance to engage the enemy. The Tartars, seeing the foe advance, showed no dismay, but came on likewise, with good order and discipline, to meet them. And when they were near, and not remained but to begin the fight, the horses of the Tartars took such fright at the sight of the elephants, that they could not be got to face the foe, but always swerved and turned back, whilst all the time the king and his forces, and all his elephants, continued to advance upon them. And when the Tartars perceived how the case stood, they were in great wrath, and wist not what to say or do, for well enough they saw that unless they could get their horses to advance, all would be lost. But their captain acted like a wise leader who had considered everything beforehand. He immediately gave orders that every man should dismount, and tie his horse to the trees of the forest that stood hard by, and that then they should take up their bows, a weapon that they know how to handle better than any troops in the world. They did as he bade them, and plied their bows stoutly, shooting so many shafts at the advancing elephants, that in a short space they had wounded or slain the greater part of them, as well as of the men they carried. The enemy also shot at the Tartars, but the Tartars had the better weapons, and were the better archers to boot. And what shall I tell you? Understand that when the elephants felt the smart of those arrows that pelted them like rain, they turned tail and fled, and nothing on earth would have induced them to turn and face the Tartars. So off they sped with such a noise and uproar, that you would have trod the world was coming to an end. And then, too, they plunged into the wood, and rushed this way and that, dashing their castles against the trees, bursting their harness, and smashing and destroying everything that was on them. So when the Tartars saw that the elephants had turned tail, and could not be brought to face the fight again, they got to horse at once and charged the enemy. And then the battle began to rage furiously with sword and mace. Right fiercely did the two hosts rush together, 
and deadly were the blows exchanged. The king's troops were far more in number than the Tartars, but they were not of such quality, nor so inured to war, otherwise the Tartars who were so few in number could never have stood against them. Then might you see swashing blows dealt and taken from sword and mace. Then might you see knights and horses and men-at-arms go down. Then might you see arms and hands and legs and heads hewn off. And besides the dead that fell, many a wounded man that never rose again, for the sore press there was. The din and uproar were so great from this side and from that, that God might have thundered and no man would have heard it. Great was the medley, and dire and perilous was the fight that was fought on both sides, but the Tartars had the best of it. In an ill hour indeed, for the king and his people, was that battle begun, so many of them were slain therein. And when they had continued fighting till midday, the king's troops could stand against the Tartars no longer, but felt that they were defeated, and turned and fled. And when the Tartars saw them routed, they gave chase, and hacked and slew so mercilessly that it was a piteous sight to see. But after pursuing a while they gave up, and returned to the wood to catch the elephants that had run away, and to manage this they had to cut down great trees to bar their passage. Even then they would not have been able to take them without the help of the king's own men who had been taken, and who knew better how to deal with the beasts than the Tartars did. The elephant is an animal that hath more wit than any other, but in this way at last they were caught, more than two hundred of them, and it was from this time forth that the great Khan began to keep numbers of elephants. So thus it was that the king aforesaid was defeated by the sagacity and superior skill of the Tartars, as you have heard. End of chapter 52